When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They called him the Hammer. That was his nickname. He used to, you know, he used to put a lot of seats, people in the seats, apparently, because as soon as they dropped the puck, he'd just grab somebody and start feeding them, you know. And he was drunk on the ice a lot, is the stories I hear. You know, he'd put a 40 down before the game. They'd go out, drop the puck, and he'd just go toe-to-toe with somebody. And apparently he wasn't a very good fighter. He Got beat a lot, but the crowd used to love it. You know the difference between hockey and those other sports? You gotta be tough to be a hockey player. I idolized Dominic Kaczyk. I played goalie because of Dominic Kaczyk. My life in hockey has been started because of Sabres hockey. I didn't need playoffs this year. I wanted it, but I didn't need it. But when you screw up for the fans as much as the team has over the last, like, five years, and just don't hold yourself accountable. I'm sorry, I'll hang up and listen, I'm sorry. Welcome to Two Goalies, One Mike, an in-depth look and behind the mask conversation about the greatest game on earth, where everything goes and nothing's off limits. Now I'll tell you something about this guy. This is only three minutes, eh? Whammo! Welcome back to episode 33 of Two Goalies, One Mike. I'm Johnny Cullen, your host as always, joined by Dwayne Steinell. And we are lucky today, Dwayne, to be joined by the NHL draft writer and staff reporter from The Athletic, Scott Wheeler. Um, big get for us, and we're excited to talk um, not only the NHL draft, but um, what life was like living in the NHL playoff bubble in Toronto. Um, Scott Wheeler, ladies and gentlemen, Scott, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, like I said, I know I've been going back and forth with you for a little bit, trying to bring you on, but I think no time was better than now with the, uh, you know, the draft coming uh, so, you know, right around the corner here. And just to get your thoughts, especially on the top 10. Yeah, it's, it's, we're getting close here. It's been a, a little bit of a lull for me the last few months. It was a little quieter. Uh, obviously, other than being in the bubble, things started to kind of slow down for me, NHL draft-wise and prospect-wise. I released kind of the first version of my final top 100 in June and then released an updated version a couple of weeks ago. And basically, in that time in between, it, it was pretty slow. There, there wasn't a lot going on. So it's nice to finally be back on the grind here and back sort of in the swing of things because the next two weeks are really what my job is built for. I mean, I, it's, it's all sort of trending towards this every year and the, the sort of 24 hour shift that I have when the NHL draft actually takes place. So can't wait for it to happen. Can't wait to provide the analysis as it happens and, and do some storytelling. I've got a bunch of cool sort of profiles coming out and that kind of a thing. Um, so it, it's going to be a, a really fun couple of weeks here. And then we finally, when it's all over, get to turn the page to the 2021 draft because it feels like the 2020 draft has been a, a, a sort of two draft cycles at this point. For sure. And, you know, they talk about hockey players being creatures of habit, but I feel like um, the journalists that cover hockey also become creatures of habit in that totally. same right. And so this, is ha- this has had to have been, a, 
you know, a weird cycle for you. You know, usually this time of year, you've already rolled out your, your preliminary, you know, people to watch. Um, mm -hmm. So as we move closer to that, one question I had is um, from when you usually do your, you know, your final ranking before the draft would have been the end of May to, um, to now um, looking at those two, um, I guess, final rankings, how much turnover have you seen? I know you mentioned that some of the, you know, European players have, have already started to skate. So I'm sure that goes yep. into it. Um, you know, but how much have you been able to put the puzzle together of how guys have developed over the summer and what's that been like? It's definitely been, been an interesting process and one that I typically don't have. My, my ranking either comes out the week of the combine typically or the week after the combine. So the combine's normally the last weekend in May, sort of beginning of June there. And then it's sort of smooth sailing. I, I've done my research and I'm looking towards the draft and looking towards finishing up some of the stories that I wanted to do on some of the kids. And this year's obviously been completely different because we, there was the shutdown in March. Then my final ranking came out and my final ranking was probably a little bit thinner than it normally is just because I didn't have U18 Worlds, the Memorial Cup, the Frozen Four, all of these events that I was planning on traveling to, to, to watch these kids live. The OHL playoffs are in my backyard here in Toronto, obviously. So there was a missed opportunity, but having that extra time has been a complete blessing because it means that a, I could dig in on tape when I wasn't in the bubble. I spent a lot of time sort of just reviewing tape on a lot of these kids and B, it gave me a lot of time really to touch base with sources, to touch base with their coaches, their general managers, their agents, other NHL scouts and pick their brains about, okay, here's where I'm at on this kid. What do you think I might be missing? Is there something in his skill set that I should be looking for? And, and it, starting that dialogue and having time and time that I typically don't have between my final list and the actual draft to, to dig in on some of those things meant that my list, when I updated it, it was actually worthwhile. The, the update actually had some substance to it. it. It had some movement to it. There were players who'd moved up seven, eight, nine slots on my board. And that was just driven by having that extra time and, and getting more comfortable with a lot of these kids. So it was a huge benefit to me. And then obviously in August, you, you had hockey return in earnest in, in Europe, at least. Uh, all of the European teams did, did their sort of typical under 20 camps in, in August. So you had competitive hockey being played between the top under 20 prospects, many of whom were draft eligible in this year's draft over there, especially for, for teams like Germany, et cetera. And then after August, once those U20 camps were over, all of those kids started training camps with their clubs and preseasons in a lot of cases. And now we've even had regular season action in terms of the KHL being back up, the, the Finnish Junior Leagues being back up officially, um, both of the leagues in Sweden getting started. So it's been nice to be able to see those kids. And then in, in North America too, you've got the QMJHL playing real hockey now. So it's been nice to see Hendricks Lapierre, for example, who lost all of last season due to a neck injury. Now he's back. He gets to show everybody that he's healthy and he's the same player. And that does a sort of a service, I think, for his draft stock because sure. he needed that opportunity to show scouts that he could still play at that kind of a level. So it, it's, been a, it's been a really, really weird year, but I, I'm, I'm appreciative of this extra time because I think, where I'm at now on this class, this is my seventh draft doing this full time. And I think where I'm at on this class is, is a sort of deeper understanding of, of my sort of top 100, top 110 kind of players than I've ever been on any draft class. And, and I didn't feel like I was going to get to that point back in March when seasons shut down and I was thinking, oh shit, uh, I'm not going to be able to watch these kids, some of these kids like I'd hope. With the players that have... Um that have risen up your draft rankings. Uh, looking at a guy like Lindell, I'm not sure where you had him in the last ranking, but since La Liga started, you know, he's somebody that might be available for Buffalo at eight. And, you know, as a Sabres, 
you know, centered podcast. We're looking, you know, at who could be available there. Um, I don't know if you do mock drafts, and I know that those are kind of a, a shit show uh, in some ways because we never know who's going to fall where, right? Um, yep. Outside of that top pick in Lafreniere and maybe uh, Quentin Blyfield at two, um, how much room is there in that, you know, top ten for, for teams to – or for players to fall down to eight? Um, and I guess the second part of that question would be, you know, in a perfect world – who do the Sabres, you know, have their eyes on, do you think? Well, I think there's, there's always going to be players who slip. It, it, that's just the natural way of things. We saw it last year with players like Cole Caulfield and Alex Newhook and Peyton Krebs, who went a little bit later than I yep. sort of expected that they would. And I think inevitably what happened last year was that it was a very forward-heavy draft, and you had a couple of defensemen who typically slide into that high range. And I think what you're going to see in this draft is the same effect. So this is, again, uh, next year's 2021 draft will be very deep on, on defensemen with potentially five or six defensemen in the top 10. This year's draft is not like that. You've got Jake Sanderson and Jamie Drysdale. And then there's a pretty significant drop-off before you hit that sort of next tier of defensemen. So right. what I think will inevitably happen is you're going to have a couple more defensemen than than, than you typically see in that range slide up. It's That's just the way of things. We know that there's not only going to be two defensemen taken in the top 20. That just never happens. So, so that could spell they, good news for the Sabres then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's you're going to see – In the top 10. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think if you're the Sabres, you've got to be looking at those forwards that are at the top of this draft and thinking, okay – who's most likely to drop and, and then just take your swing. Don't, don't overthink it. Don't try to get cute with that pick. Just take the best forward that, that sort of falls into your lap. Cause I think there will be some huge value in that player. And Wondell is certainly a, a player who I would expect to, to be available in that range. I don't think he's going to go any higher than that. So he'll be there, but it, he, he may not even be my guy in, in that range. I have Wendell nine, which means you're probably going to have players who are ranked ahead of him on my board who are still available. And any that chance means Raymond I, falls into that category? I don't think Raymond will slip that far. I think you're going to see Raymond and Cole Perfetti and Tim Stutzla and, and sort of those guys gone. And then maybe one or two of those defensemen gone, which probably means that the players I'd be looking at are Alexander Holtz and Marco Rossi. I, I think both of those kids are better prospects than Lundell. And I think they would be great fits for the Sabres. So oh, man, I would be thrilled with Rossi. You know, I know yeah. he's undersized, but just a dynamic player. The way he's able to see the ice and uh, love your commentary on him. Him playing in Ottawa 67s, I spent a year and a half in Kingston and mm. played against that Toffoli, um, Prince, Monaghan line. So I have nightmares still of the 67s, although their uniforms are awesome. Big fan of the barber pole stripes, eh? One of the best uniforms in all of hockey, I think. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. He's a special player. But yeah, Marco, Marco's special. I mean, he does it all. And, and despite the fact that he's quote unquote undersized through, through being five foot nine, he's one of the strongest players on the ice every time he's out there and he is built like a truck. So yeah. players bounce off of him. He has no trouble shedding checks and fighting along the, the boards and winning positioning and playing on the cycle and all of those things. So I have no issue with his size whatsoever. And I think he has the chance to be one of the most well-rounded players in this draft. And that's going to have value, even if he doesn't have maybe some of the offensive pop of a Cole Perfetti or a Lucas Raymond. So I think he would be a huge, huge, huge win for a team like the Sabres. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. You got one? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a little bit better this time. Uh, yeah. So again, we, uh, as I mentioned, as you mentioned before, with you not having all of those events, you know, like I said, the frozen four, the OHL playoffs, um, 
you know, et cetera, et cetera, at your disposal to kind of base rankings like this off of. I'm just, you know, I, I was looking at the list and I saw guys like Stutzel, you know, at, at a seven, you know, Marco Rossi moved up the board from last time, me and Cully, uh, you know, you know, visit, visited draft rankings on the show. I'm like, I'm just curious. It's just, again, it's just more impressive, like the extra work you had to do to, to, to create a rankings like this. I'm just curious, how did guys like Stutzel kind of fall down a little bit on the list? The last time I remember, he was more of a top five guy. Um, and uh, with a guy as quick as he is, you know, you know, how, how, mm-hmm. how smooth of a skater. I'm just curious how guys like him kind of went, moved down that list and how guys like, Marco Rossi moved up that list. Well, I think the big thing for me with Tim is that he he's certainly going to go second or third overall, I think. I think you'll see him either go to the Kings at, at sort of number two there or, or go to, to Ottawa at number three there. So I, I wouldn't read too much into my list. My list is not a, a sort of barometer for where I think these kids are going to go or any kind of mock draft. My list is strictly sort of my evaluation of where I think these kids are at. And I think in Tim, the reason that I settled a little bit lower on him than most is because I think all of those other kids in the offensive zone in particular, and also on the defensive zone, if you're a Marco Rossi or a Lucas Raymond, I think all of those kids had an element to their game that was a little bit more aware that they, they're problem solvers in a way, a Cole Perfetti and a Lucas Raymond, these kids, when they're in the offensive zone, they can play through pressure. They can play, play through layers. They can play through traffic. They're smarter than everybody else out there. They're thinking one, two, three steps ahead. They can upshift. They can downshift. They, they can play at several tempos. With Tim, my, my concern, if I have one, is that, sure, he's this brilliant, brilliant transition player. He's going to be one of the best skaters in the NHL from day one. He's got that sort of Matt Barzell quality to his skating. He's going to be able to create off the rush better than virtually anyone else in this draft class. And that's very alluring. But I think what, one of the things that set me a little bit lower on him was that he doesn't have that same quality in the offensive zone. He, he plays on instinct a little bit too much. He can try to do too much. He doesn't see the ice as well as some of those other players. And he sees a play and he tries to will it into existence. And I think that's a, that's a very admirable quality. There are players who excel at playing that kind of a style, who can just sort of make see something and try to make it happen. And he can. He's talented enough to do that. But I think the way I evaluate players, I want players who are a little bit more cerebral than that, who process the game at a little bit of a higher level than that, and who are thinking, okay, rather than just what I see, what what else might be available? What are things that other people may not see? Because chances are, if if the first thing I, I see as a play that's available is 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 sort of right in front of me then chances are it's right in front of everyone else too when you're on the ice right and how how can I be deceptive how can I surprise people and I'm just not sure that he has that same quality at least not to the same degree of of Cole Perfetti or a Lucas Raymond who I'm a little bit higher on I appreciate so it's a more of like a uh, sorry go ahead Dwayne so it's more of like kind of like a lower hockey IQ thing with Tim whereas yeah you know and I, and I I appreciate that answer because I kind of thought the same thing with him um and and that, that makes sense to me why he would fall down to seven on your list. And I'm not going to lie, and, and Cully will back this up, I've been, you know, a Marco Rossi guy, you know, outside, you know, the top two picks for a little bit now, only because the dire need for, for you know, kind of like immediate help for the Sabres. And Marco mm-hmm. Rossi's always been projected as a guy who could essentially come into the league next year and contribute yeah. rather than to have to sit and develop on him. And obviously we have a dire need at center. Now, with us bringing in a guy like Eric Stahl to kind of be a stopgap between, uh, you know, 
for, for Dylan Cousins to let him develop properly, maybe the need isn't there so much at center. You know, you don't have to draft a center. You can go after, you know, a guy, you know, a guy like, um, excuse me, like a, like a Cole Perfetti or, uh, you know, a Lucas Raymond. Um, just because, just because you, you, you have time to develop your two centers that you do have in the system right now with, you know, you know, again, Dylan Cousins and, you know, I, I'm not going to say begrudgingly with, you know, cause yeah, I'm not going to, I think the jury is still out on Casey Middlestat. Um, and then here's actually a question for you too. What is your opinion on Casey Middlestat and his struggles so far for Buffalo, you know? Oh, well, I, I think it's complicated. I, I think a, that he can't, he was rushed into the league a little bit too quickly. Mm-hmm. He was the, the perfect case study of a kid who probably needed more time in college um, there's no question he had uh, first at the junior level and then in that college season that he had some star quality to him, that he had some dynamism to his game, that he could make plays that few other kids could make. And then what happened was I, I think everybody got kind of trapped by that, that skill and that what could be with this kid. And he came along a little bit early. He wasn't ready for the NHL physically in terms of his fitness levels. He was a little underweight for his size in his draft class. And then suddenly he went to college and he came out a little bit overweight and he just looked like he had tried too hard to add to just sort of get those, those NHL pounds that everybody wants you to add. And then suddenly one thing led to another and he wasn't the same player anymore. He looked a little bit slower and he, he lost his confidence. He lost his mojo. So I still think there's an opportunity for him to, to sort of find that next year and become a, an impactful top nine player who can also play on one of your top two power play units and give you 40, 45, 50 points. But that's a, that's a, that's a sort of middle six kind of outcome for him. And I think some people expected him to be a little bit more than that. So we'll see. I, I haven't given up on Casey. I, I think the talent is still mostly there. His skating is a bit of an issue for me, but I don't know. Outside of that, I, I think he's got a lot of the other tools that you need. So we'll see. It's the, again, the jury's still out. He's still a very young kid. I mean, he, hell, he could still be in college right now and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So um, I think it should be. Yeah. So it's, it's been a, it's been a, a tough trajectory for him. They've probably mishandled it. And now it's time to kind of reset and, and see where he can take it in this next couple of years to carve out a niche. I think you hit the nail on the head and he is an absolute case study on somebody that came out a little bit too early. I think a big part of that too was his play at the world juniors and the fact that the world juniors was in Buffalo and that kind of all culminated in him being there. And you're right with a player that that played his game. You need that confidence. You need that for lack of a better term swagger. And you know, in his, in his troubles, you lose that. And he started to get a little bit back in Rochester. So I'm with you. I think the jury's still out. Um, wasn't put in a great situation and, you know, underperformed. So it'll be great to see him coming back. Um, going back to your draft ratings, I always appreciate that disclaimer you throw in uh, because you, you don't go about it like everybody else does. And, and I, I appreciate how, you know, you do it your way and, and, and you're able to delve into the details because it gives us a better look outside of the cookie cutter uh, profiles on these players. And, and I, I like that. Um, for me, the first question I would have is, um, outside of, of Lafreniere, and I know this might be tough to answer depending on team needs. Do you see anybody that is a definite to make the, the jump to, to the pro game right away? Um, and I have a second part. I'll wait to answer that. I think Marco has a chance, uh, a very good chance. Marco has basically told everyone in the hockey world that he's going to be in the NHL next year. He didn't sign with ZSC Lions, who were the pro team that owned his rights 
minutes in Europe. He's not going back to the Ottawa 67s, despite being eligible on his age to go back to the CHL. So he said, I, I'm going to sort of wait. I'm not going to play hockey. If that means maybe I'm a little bit slower to get going here, because a lot of my peers have been playing competitive games elsewhere, then so be it. But I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to bet on making my NHL club. And I plan on being in the NHL this year. So all the power to him. I think he's capable. I think he's in part because of his age and in part because of his physical maturity now. Um, I think he's ready. I, th I think he's, he's there in terms of the way that he processes the game. The defensive game will be a huge asset for him because it means that he doesn't have to play in a sheltered role. He doesn't have to play at the top of the lineup. You could realistically slot him in as your third line center. And I think he would play that role just fine. And then you move him up the lineup a year later, if you will. So uh, he's, I, th I think he's ready. He, he's probably the guy who I think is most ready after Alexi. And then otherwise, I, I think there are a couple of coin flips there. I think Cole Perfetti's a coin flip. I think a lot of people expect him to be back in the OHL next year. I'm not sure that's going to be the best avenue for him. I'm not sure he has anything else to offer in the OHL. Yeah. So if he has a really good camp, I think he could make a case for himself. I'm not as worried about Cole Perfetti's skating or size as some other people are. So I think that's a, a definite benefit for him in terms of maybe surprising some people. Um, and, and then, I don't know, maybe Jamie Drysdale, if he has an unbelievable training camp, but I think he would be a little bit more of a stretch. So you're probably only looking at really just Alexi, probably Marco, and then maybe a Cole Perfetti. All of the kids in Europe, the Tim Stutzlas, uh, Tim wants to come over here and play, and I think that's a possibility for him as well. But those other kids, the, the Anton Lundells, the Marco Rossi, or the uh, Lucas Raymonds, the Alexander Holtzes, the, the two Swedes in particular are staying another year in, in, in the SHL for sure. And Lundell hasn't completely made up his mind, but he's become an assistant captain with that team. He, he thinks and agrees with his coaching staff who will tell you that um, they think another year before he makes the jump to the NHL is probably the best bet for Lundell. So you're probably looking at three, maybe four kids if Tim Stutzla has a really good camp and, and sort of wows his team. And depending on where he lands, I think he's, but Tim is more likely to be in the NHL if he's in Ottawa than if he's in LA, I would, I would, I would guess. Uh, but we'll see it. The jury's still out on where he'll even land. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, but I think you're probably only looking at three or four kids in the NHL. Yeah. I mean, it's always interesting to, to see where, um, you know, where guys end up and like we saw with Kirby doc, him making the jump last year, right? Some guys do, some guys don't. Um, mm -hmm. I always think that's interesting. Part two of my question um, goes back. I, I kind of on the flip side of that, we see, you know, a lot of variance in, in where goalies fall in, in the draft, especially in the first round. You know, some, some teams have shied away from taking them. Um, and, you know, there was some controversy, I guess, with Florida taking Spencer Knight. Obviously, he was, you know, in my opinion, the best goalie in the draft. But, you know, where they took him and how us goalies take a little bit longer to develop. This year, it's pretty clear that, um, what is it, Askarov is, is the, the clear-cut number one, right? Um, yep. Do you see him, you know, sneaking into that? to the top, you know, 15, or I know you have him ranked 11th, but as you put before, that's not necessarily where you think he'll go. Um, I know he struggled a little bit there in the world juniors, but like when I've seen him, he's either been, you know, the best goalie on the ice or, you know, like he, a little bit of jitterness in that world juniors, but obviously no denying his talent, what he's been able to do at the KHL and, and a limited showing at a young age. Um, where do you have any idea where he'll end up? Any goalie hungry teams um, that you see in the first round, or is that a big toss up as well? 
I think there are three teams near the top of the draft that make the most sense. The, the first is, is more of a wild card. I think the Minnesota Wild will likely consider him at number nine. That's probably the earliest that I think he could go. Um, they uh, Obviously, between Alex Stalock and, and, and um, Devin Dubnik, you've got two goalies there who are now 34, 35, 36 years old. Um, they're on, on the sort of tail swing. You've got Capo Kakinen coming, who's one of the best goalies in the AHL last year, but there's no guarantee that he's going to be a starter at the next level and may settle in as more of a backup type. So th there's an obvious hole there in, in Minnesota, and I think they're the earliest team that could take him at number nine. But I think the most likely landing spot for him is at 13 and 14 with Edmonton and Carolina. Edmonton, we all know the need in net there. We all know what they have at forward and what they have coming on defense in terms of players like Evan Bouchard and Philip Roberg and others. So uh, I think that Edmonton is very well positioned to potentially take that swing. And then the Carolina Hurricanes, I mean, they, they've stated outwardly that they're on the hunt for a goalie. So um, James Reimer, you say what you will about James Reimer or Peter Morazic, et cetera. The, those aren't the, the sort of cornerstone goalies that you want if you're going to win the Stanley Cup. So I, I think Carolina and Edmonton at 13-14, he probably won't make it past there. And if he does, I don't think there's any way that the Leafs at 15 would pass on him given their need no in net as they move past the, the next era with Frederick Anderson and move beyond Frederick Anderson to whatever comes next. So um, those three teams at 13, 14, 15, I don't think there's any way he falls, falls out of that range. Interesting. Good answer. Love it. Now going off, uh, you know, Cully uh, piggybacking off his, the first part of his question, one, one big name you left off your list as far as NHL ready goes was Quinton Byfield. Would you contribute that, honestly? And, like, I've read all this, and I've seen it, I've seen it as game two to more of the, the, the lack of game in his own end, um, his defensive struggles. Um, like, because, I mean, what, one thing I love about his game is just the combination. There's, I mean, obviously there's one thing you can't teach in life, and that's size. Uh, but his, his ability, like, his, the speed with the combination of his size, that's one of the things that really turned on to me. And I loved your comparisons to guys like Malkin and Stahl with him, because I 100% absolutely agree. Um, you know, and do, do you see his defensive struggles? Is that what's keeping him from not just being NHL ready, like, next year, but, you know, kind of being at that level of Lafreniere? Because, again, like, mm -hmm. I, I was all aboard Quentin Byfield, you know, you know, if, you know if, if in a perfect world where Buffalo, you know, would, 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 you know, be in the top three. Me personally, for a while there, I was like, I want to fall in at two, so you don't have to fight the urge to, you know, you know, take Byfield at one. But uh, I know I understand Lafreniere is the clear-cut consensus first overall pick. But like, I've always been very high on Byfield. You know, even going into last year before even the these initial rankings and mock drafts came out. So is is that what's keeping him from, you know, being able to make that jump? Is that something just he needs to obviously develop more on? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I'm not convinced that he's not going to make the jump. I'm not ready to rule out Quinton Byfield playing in the NHL next year. But I do think there's a polish of his game that he lacks relative to some other players. There's a, there's a refinement to some of his tools. He's got the hunch to his stride that puts him a little off balance. He's got the opportunity still, despite being 6'4 and, and one of the strongest players in the OHL last season, he's still got the opportunity to get even more strong. And I know he's worked hard at that this summer. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Quinston because I don't think he's quite there yet. I don't think he has 
shown at the, despite being one of the best players in junior hockey last year, that he's so good in junior hockey that he's an automatic NHL option this year. So I think Clinton's more of a, a coin flip. I, th- I think if he has a good training camp, they'll give him that sort of nine game, game stint out that we all know out of the gate to see whether he's ready and see whether they want to burn a year of his entry level contract. And then they'll make their decision from there. And certainly he'll be a big part of what Canada does at World Juniors regardless. And all of that's going to enter into the conversation with Quinton. So we'll see. He Again, the, between the, the skating and the defensive side of his game, and, and not to say that he's been a great skater because it's a major, major strength of his game, actually, especially at that size. But there's a bit of a hunch to his stride. His legs can sort of splay and bend from the knees and that kind of a thing. So there are some kinks to his game that need to be ironed out. And if, if I wouldn't blame an NHL team per se, if they made the decision that they want him to spend some more time in junior or even just spend the first half of the season in junior, um, go to the world juniors, that kind of a thing. So we'll see. It's, it's going to be a weird year in the OHL as well. Just given that the, the fact that they're starting in December and they're starting a little bit later than most other leagues. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's not an easy conversation and it's not an easy decision for both Quinton and, and his agent, but also for, just the, the, whichever organization, whether it's Ottawa or LA, that takes him at, at second or third overall. So um, we'll see. But I, I, I do think that there's some refinement that's going to be required in his game before he can reach that top level. And, and part of that is just because he's younger than these kids. He's, he's got a late birthday in this draft class. He's almost a year younger than players like Marco Rossi and Alexi Lafreniere. So he, he's, just, he's, he's a little earlier in his development. That's just the bottom line with him. Um, yeah, and, and uh, like – um, you know, watching a lot of, well, watching him as much as I have, uh, another, another guy that I used to, I used to think about, you know, at least for me growing up watching him was, you know, I'm not going to say you know, they're on the same level cause they're not was Eric Lindros because he played, he plays a little bit of a heavier game too, especially in front of the net. And, you know, I mean, not again, not to say that that's a, a great comparison, but you, you reminded me a lot of Lindros. I guess that's kind of like why I've been so high on him for as long as I have. And, um, but I, I definitely agree with your assessments on, um, you know, what he's struggling with and what he needs to work on and why, like you said, you're not sold that he wouldn't play in the NHL next year, but you know, if, if he worked to the reasons why he wouldn't be um, absolutely hundred percent agree. Yeah. And I, I, the Eric Lindros sort of comparison, I don't know. I, I, I think Eric's obviously much heavier bigger stronger meaner oh yeah despite being six four dominated on on par with what Lafreniere did right with that Asha Generals team they won the Mem Cup and he was a big part of that there was so much hype around him um it's so long ago I was such a little kid but I remember there was somebody I love watching on on that run um and you know it was fun to I I love what you guys do on on delving back into the past and and some of that stuff it's it's fun to see um Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there and, and steal your thunder, Dwayne. But I, I also no, love no, no, no. Fifield's heavy game. Um, I and it, it's you know looking down the the lineup of the you know the top bit of the draft. There's not a ton of that. So, but you know it's interesting to see that the game's trending more towards speed, right? Whereas 10, 15 years ago, a guy like that would have been a hot commodity. We're seeing more and more, you know, more of a preference towards speeds over size, right? Definitely. The game is changing. And I think what makes Quinton so unique is that there are fewer and fewer players who look like him. There aren't a lot of kids who are 
six foot three, six foot four, who can play with his kind of speed and tempo and pace. And those are all of the things that, that teams are typically looking for these days. So he, he's a unicorn for sure in that kind of a way. And I mean, Miko Rantanen had a little bit of that in his game when, when he was selected as high as he was, but you don't typically see players of that size taken at the top of the draft anymore. And Rantanen and maybe Blake Wheeler before that are, are probably the most the two most recent examples uh, without having to go way, way back to, to players like we've already mentioned, the Eric Stahls, the Evgeny Malkin. So there are a small number of players with his blend of, of size and skill at the NHL level, and that makes him so exciting. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and, you know, he, he comes in at, you know, I think around 220 pounds. I think Lindros's draft year, I want to say he was even heavier than that. Yeah, he, um, he again, again, you can't teach, you know, you, know, you can't teach size, but have the speed that they both have at, the si- at their size. Like I said, they're already built like men. Um, you, you mentioned guys being drafted, uh, taken at the top of the draft. You know, you call them unicorns. The last guy I think about like that was probably like Aaron Ekblad. Aaron Ekblad was built like a man at 18 years old. Like he, his body at was 15 ready years for the old. <laughs> I, yeah, was, like, I was in Windsor when he was in Sun County Panthers. I skated with him guys when he was 14. And he came out to a skate with our like Windsor Spitfire group. And there was pros there like Steve Ott, uh, Henrique. Um, but I swear, I'd never seen anything like it. A 14 year old. I thought, I didn't realize who it was at the time. I thought he was, you know, another OHL guy that had just been popped in 14 years old and was an absolute freak on the ice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he was special back then at, at that age, especially, especially in minor hockey. I have a couple more draft questions and I really wanted to touch on uh, what life was like in that bubble. Um, when, when you look at a tournament like the Ivan Holinka Gretzky, um, I was fortunate enough to play in that, and that did a lot for my career. Um, but just where it falls uh, in comparison to the regular U18, um, it's, it's usually after the draft, right? Yep. So they're not having it this year? Obviously, it would have, had, would have been, what, end of August? Yep, it's been canceled. Uh, the World Junior A Challenge has been canceled. None of those major events are happening other than the World Juniors. So how will that affect your, your rankings for, for the following season? Is that going to, you know, make it a little bit more difficult for you following into, you know, starting your, your early uh, list to watch? Yeah, it'll definitely be a factor. There's no question because I'm normally in the building for those events and, and it's a time not that kind of a thing. So it's definitely the, the World Junior A Challenge and the Helenka Gretzky Cup and U18 Worlds, which were supposed to have happened basically right after things shut down. I was preparing to, to head down to, to, to Plymouth to watch it sort of play out. And uh, the Frozen Four was going to be the week after. And all of that was right around the corner. So it, it's definitely a, a sort of hit for the 2021 class. I actually think, despite the fact that we lost more hockey uh, for the 2020 class. I actually think the 2021 class is going to be the more difficult draft class to evaluate in terms of the, the way that I do my job, just because even though most of these, these leagues look like they're going to be able to have full seasons and play full seasons, the access to them is going to be more limited. I'm not going to be able to be in the rink as much. I'm not going to be able to be sort of face to face with these kids talking to them and interviewing them um, as much as I would like to. And then the major sort of tentpole events aren't going to be happening at all in some cases. So uh, it's going to be different. I'm hoping you get into the bubble in Edmonton for the World Juniors, which I'm looking forward to. And that'll be a good couple of weeks after Christmas. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll see what the media policies look like for for the, the bubble that they're going to create in Edmonton. But it's going to be a, a different year for sure. A lot of the leagues are on different timelines as well with the WHL and and the USHL and college hockey and the OHL all starting up a little bit later than the most of the European leagues that are already underway. So 
there's no question that there's going to be more challenges this year in terms of just a being able to get into the rink and b just being able to gather information on these kids so it maybe that creates a draft that's a little more live next year a little more uh, uh sort of risk involved in terms of looking back five ten years from now at what that 2021 draft looked like and who went where and the mistakes that were made and all of that. It's, it's going to make the, the job of NHL scouts very difficult as well, because they love being in the rank. And um, quite frankly, not all of them are even well equipped to operate a computer in some cases for some of the older gentlemen. So um, it, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a, a sort of very different process for everyone. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out and what the dynamic is. I just purchased my very first, uh, I can't even call it a laptop. I just bought a, uh, a MacBook uh, just in the last week for the first time probably since college and I graduated. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, whatever. No one calls it a laptop, no. But, I mean, I mean it's a MacBook. But I, I, it's the first time I've ever purchased anything like that since I graduated college, and that was, you know, almost 12 years ago now. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm right there with them as far as being ignorant when it comes to technology. Um, I can work a smartphone with the best of them, but I, I'm actually pretty nervous because this thing's coming in in the next couple of days. I got to, I got to go pick it up and I'm like, I'm going to be right there with them staring at this thing. Like where do I even start? Well, I, I think it's interesting <laughs> though, because the Sabres, Dwayne, you remember this, they, uh, they made a comment how they wanted to cut back in the budget by moving a lot of their scouting to um video stole Only. my thunder i was going there into that was, uh, go ahead, well, go ahead. sorry buddy but no go ahead go ahead scott there was a big pushback from a lot of the scouts there i had the, the opportunity to talk with john cristiano who, who spent years in the sabers organization as the as the head scout and um you know he spoke on on the scouts preference uh preference to uh be there live so um i guess t piggybacking on that how much do you get to interact in a normal world how much do you get to interact with some of the scouts um, while you're watching hockey, um, or, you know, and, and pick their brains and leading up to the draft in a normal year? I mean, it's every week. I, I try to get out to an OHL game every week or every couple of weeks during the season, whether that's in Peterborough or Barrie or Oshawa or Mississauga, that kind of a thing. Those are the sort of close markets to me. I'm often in Guelph and Hamilton occasionally as well and that kind of a thing. Um, so it's, 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 it's pretty constant from start to finish, and that'll be different this year for sure. And then I, I obviously see all those guys as well at the World Juniors and the World Junior A Challenge and Halinka. U18 Worlds and the Traverse City Prospect Tournament that I typically go to and that kind of a thing. So um, it's a busy schedule normally, and this year is going to be a little bit slower. Love it. Dwayne, um, before I transition to, to life in the bubble, you got any more draft questions? Uh, I do, actually. Uh, well, first, uh, you know, piggybacking off the question you asked earlier, too, when it comes to the goaltending, we got to ask her off. You know, we have two prospects in our system here in Buffalo that uh, we've touched on in previous episodes, obviously the biggest being UPL, Ukapeka Lukanen. Uh, but another guy, too, we have, he was going to be playing in Michigan this year, uh, Eric Portillo. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we're all high on UPL. I mean, there's no, you know, getting around that. We all, there's a lot of expectations for him. I know me and Kelly have talked about, you know, him just having hip surgery and how difficult, like, yep. you know, us being goalies, how difficult this game is on your hips, you know, with the butterfly and, you know, how much stress that puts on your lower body, uh, you know, how difficult that will be to, for him to come back and play at the level he was beforehand. But also you're just your thoughts on Eric Portillo and, you know, what we should expect from him because we spoke to Steve Shields 
uh, a few months ago. And uh, he's the goaltending coach over at Michigan. And he's very, very high on Eric. Yeah, Eric's a, a freak in terms of just the size, the, the package of size. You just you don't often see that. That kid is just tall, flat out tall. And so I think anytime you see a goalie who has that kind of size and then he can still move in the net, then you're excited about him, right? And, and I wouldn't say that he's the most technically sound goalie. I, I think there are a, a little a, too, too many pucks, if you will, I think can, can sort of squeak through the holes there. And part of that is just that, quite frankly, it's harder when you're that big to be in your stance all the time, to be ready for, for those sort of routine shots all of the time. Um, and, and there are more holes in terms of that, that space under your arm, that kind of a thing. So um, despite the size, the, the, there, it cre also creates some other problems. You don't just naturally fill the net when you're a little bit taller. But I think the fact that he is that big and that he can still move and he's still agile, he's still light on his feet, he's quick in the net, that's the exciting part about Eric Portillo. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with it behind what is going to be a sensational sort of underclassman class at, at Michigan. So um, it's going to be fun to watch that team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that Michigan has a, a good roster. I don't follow college hockey too much. But um, my dad went to Ohio State, so me and my brother became big Michigan Wolverine fans, strictly out of spite. So love to hear that. And, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, like, like Dwayne said, and you guys, you touched on, uh, it'll be fun to see him take the jump. Dwayne, I, I'm interested to see how um, UPL does in his first full year as a starter in Rochester. I think if he can show promise, it's going to be um, – it's, it's going to, you know, bode well for us. Um, not a draft question, but piggybacking off that, uh, Scott, do you think the Sabres – make a move here for a free agent goaltender. I, I feel like the Carter Hutton experiment has, has gone by the wayside um, and, and hasn't been successful. Um, did you think they make a move for, I know it's, you know, going to be musical chairs with the goaltenders this year. Uh, anybody, anybody pop out uh, in, in the market that could make sense here? It's tough. I, I think it's going to come down to budget. You don't want to be, if you're, the Buffalo Sabres, I don't think you want to be going after another three or $4 million goalie, a kind of a, a sort of 1A, 1B type, a backup type who might have more to offer. I, I don't think that's the range you want to be swinging on. So if you're the Sabres, I think you're, you're swinging on a starter or you're sitting tight. And I'm not sure that based off of what I know about where the Sabres are at financially and everything that's happened with the, the way that sort of caps are being reconstructed internally at some of these organizations for next season due to the the sort of financial implications of COVID. Um, I'm not sure they're going to be in the market for the, the sort of bigger names, even, even a player like Braden Holtby, who I'm not sure would be a great option for them. I'm not even sure they're going to be in that kind of a conversation for, for someone like a Holtby or, I mean, you go down the list, the, the sort of top goalie goalies that are available in this, this off season in free agency. So it, free agency is going to move really quickly. And I think the teams that are the wealthier teams in the league and that are more stable financially are going to win out this year, maybe more than they typically do because not everybody's prepared to spend to the top of the cap this coming season. And I think the Sabres are probably in that group. For sure. I agree. Um, you know, and, you know, with that being said, you know, I, I've, I know it came out yesterday, yesterday that um, Craig Anderson wouldn't be resigning with mm -hmm. Ottawa. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm just, I'm, I've, I will die on this hill. I do not want to pay a goalie a lot of money ever. Like I just don't, I think, I think Montreal is the perfect example of that. Why you don't pay a goalie big time, you know, money, you know, paying Carey Price $10 million. As good as he is, as good as he's been, 
you handcuff your team in other places when you pay a goalie that kind of money. And I think guys like Anton Kadobin, uh, Matt Murray, um, you know, and, and Crawford, you know, uh, Corey Crawford are examples of you don't need elite goaltending. As great as Kadobin's playing right now, you know, look how long it, it took for him to get here. You know, he could be just a flash in the pan for all we know. Yep. Um, you know, you don't have to pay your goaltending big money. You want to build in front of it. I'm a huge proponent of giving Linus Omar his opportunity to be that guy this year and just bring some experience, some veteran experience. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I reported earlier that I, I, I would be looking into guys like Crawford, um, a guy who you're not got to pay a lot of money, hopefully not to pay a lot of money. You're bringing a couple rings into your room and a guy who could just, you know, you know, be there to sit next to Linus and, you know, you know, bring some of his wisdom uh, to, to Linus. Uh, even with Craig Anderson, I know he hasn't had, a, you know, a ton of a ton of success. You know, he's been on a very bad Ottawa team. But that run he made in 2017-2018, the Eastern Conference Finals, coming, you know, you know, within a game of making the finals, especially when, when his wife Nicole was fighting for her life. I mean, you know, you know, that's a, that's a lot. You know, you, there's certain things you just can't, you know, the culture these guys can bring to the room. Um, I, I just, I, I'm just not big on bringing a guy, like you said, Holpe. I, I want nothing to do with Matt Murray personally. Um, you know, I love Holpe. Fuck Murray, but I love Holpe. Yeah, you listen, yeah, absolutely fuck Matt Murray. I think he's just, I think he's just a product of the team he played on. Personally, that's just me. Um, but I, I'm not willing to pay Brandon Holpe $5 million a year on a team that's not ready to win. I'm just not. You know, it's just stupid, especially when you have so many struggles in other areas of, of your team, uh, especially, again, up front and on your blue line. I, I mean, our blue line is, I'm sorry, outside of Darlene and Yoki Harju, is absolutely horrendous. You have to address concerns there. And you have guys like in free agency like TJ Brody uh, that might be available, Hamannick. Obviously, the big one is Petrangelo. I'd rather spend money there and, you know, at, at the wing now that you kind of – you. You, you assume you have your second line center solved with Eric Stahl. You can build a you, you can build a strong a stronger wing group around around your top three centers. You know, with them signing Curtis Lazar, who I'm assuming will probably be your third line center next year. Um, uh, you know, all assuming that also that Dylan Cousins is your third line center if, if unless they transition him to wing. I just I just don't want to spend money on a Braden Holby. I don't like even I think Kadopman's played himself out of Dallas. I think with how well he's played, I think he you know he's not going to be with Dallas next year. I don't want to spend $5 million on a goalie. So that's why I come to the names like a Craig Anderson, like maybe a Cam Talbot, maybe, you know, uh, you know, um, a, a Corey Crawford. And just, just your, 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 your opinions on that. You know, do, do, do you see them bringing in a guy like, like, like a Craig Anderson? I mean, I know he's 39 years old, but, you know, if he still wants to play and he wants to sign a one-year deal, I'm not opposed to it. I think Anderson makes actually a decent amount of sense for them in that Thank you. I think Olmark is I think Olmark's an underrated goalie. I think he's been that way for a little while. I, I think he's ready to take a step. He was great last year in, in sort of his his split platoon kind of a role. And I think if you bring in Anderson and Olmark struggles at, at different points in the season, you've got a guy who you can sort of use on a sort of game-to-game basis potentially. Um, and he, again, yeah, I, I think that's a nice stopgap to get, get Olmark from the kind of goalie who's capable of being a, a very good goalie in a platoon to the kind of goalie that could potentially be your starter. And, and maybe they only want a one or two year sort of veteran deal for a guy, yeah. to help him sort of guide him to that next step. And then 
maybe by then you've got players like Portillo and, and Pekka Lukinen kind of thing, maybe ready to knock on the door and begin to challenge Jewel marks for some minutes. So I, I think Anderson makes sense in that way for sure. And one of the things you said too about uh, about Eric Portillo is you know he wasn't very technically sound. The same could be said, and me and Cully have talked about this before too. In you know the in 2019, neither was Linus, and then he gets started working more with Mike Bales, you know the goalie coach here, and he took so many steps as far as you know his game, uh, you know his 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 skating, uh, just you know being more patient, not relying so much on his size to make saves because in 2019. He was he relied so much on his size to make saves rather than just always making sure you're in the front in the right position to make the save. Yep. Um. I thought Linus made so many steps this past season into you know take again many steps taking that next step to be a consistent starting goaltender in this league. And I I 100% agree with you. Um. If if given the opportunity, he is very underrated, and I think he can be. I'm, I'm not gonna say a franchise goalie. But I think he could be the answer here for at least the next three to four years. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you're crazy in that assessment at all. So I had um, transitioning over to away from the draft, and I appreciate how, you know, the time you spend with that and, and, and allowing, you know, people like me that, to get a better understanding of some of these lesser-known guys. I think it's great, especially going through all the way to the top 100. I can't imagine the hours you put into that, watching video. I think you did a tremendous job. For all of our listeners that haven't um, done it already, get your athletic subscription and check out Scott's work. Um, it's phenomenal. Um, and not only just a draft, you did an awesome feature on the World Cup of Hockey. But before we get to that, because I definitely want to pick your brain on that, that was a tremendous piece and got me so excited um, to thinking what could have been with that. Uh, although I am excited that to, with the new CBA that the Olympics will be back. Um, oh, I yeah. thought the World Cup of Hockey presented um, a unique scenario for us to see another best-on-best best competition, uh, especially your work with the, the potential Team North America. But before we get into that, I have to ask you, you, you had the opportunity to, to spend um, time in the, uh, the bubble for, in Toronto for the first two rounds. Um, just kind of take us through what that was like and um, maybe a story or two on, on what the experience was. Uh, that must have been uh, something else. It was something else, and it's something that I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. It, it was a, a very, very unique experience and something that I don't think is ever going to be replicated again. The NHL has no plans to revisit the bubble as an option next year. They want to be in their own ranks, and they want to potentially even have fans if they can. So I think this was a one-and-done deal. Obviously, Toronto didn't have the full Stanley Cup playoffs. We had the qualifying round and then round one and two. So virtually three rounds of playoff hockey were played in Toronto. And it was a ton of fun. I, I, I attended about two-thirds of the games that were held here. I was at the rink basically every day, seven days a week for, for a month. Um, and and it, was, it was different. The, the first couple of weeks in particular, there was a bit of a culture shock for me. Not only just being in the rink in terms of how I watched the game, that was very different because you got to see things that you don't typically see. You got to pick up on things that you don't typically pick up on. We were a little bit lower to the ice. So instead of having us in the press box, they actually assigned us seats in the stands to watch in terms of the media landscape that, that was set up for us. Um, and, and then so being a little bit closer to the action and then being able to hear what's going on on the bench, the, the dialogue between players in front of the net, the, the chirping, that kind of a thing, that gave insight as well into just the flow of the game, the intensity of the game. There were different, some teams were ratcheted way up and, and sort of screaming on the bench all the time to try and keep themselves without fans. 
involved in what was happening and other teams were a little bit more quiet. So it, it was, it was a really, really unique experience. I, I was nearly hit by a couple of pucks by virtue of being a little bit lower and often having my head in my laptop. So that was a bit of a, a sort of something to pay out, pay attention to. So all of those little things, the, the doing Zoom interviews and all of that was one thing, but the actually the, the the viewing experience I found to be a lot of fun and really interesting for me from a sort of player evaluation tactic standpoint. I did a couple of stories on tactics and that kind of a thing over the course of the playoffs and just being able to focus and not have any distractions. I don't have my journalism colleagues sitting to my right or to my left like I normally do in the press box. I don't have all of the distractions of the crowd below you and the noise and the sort of intermission segments that happen at the arena and that kind of a thing. So it was just hockey. You could focus on hockey. You could really pick the game, pick the game apart. And you were just sitting in the quiet of the rink. And certainly some of the days also got got really long. I, I found the, the sort of second round, I was starting to get a little fatigued of it all. Um, when you're, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but when you're at the rink for, for three games in a day and you're there for 13, 14, 15 hours in a day, and then you've got to do it all over again the next day and there's no food being served in the rink and that kind of a thing, that too was also presented its own challenges in terms of how I do my job. So um, it, uh, you get pretty tired when you're there all day and it's obviously cold, et cetera. So th there, there were layers to it. it. It was a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, all told, it was a ton of fun. I got to do some really quirky kind of unique stories. I organized a group text with, with some sources, some coaches that I know from around the hockey world and managers and skills coaches and that kind of a thing. And uh, I just sat there for one of the games at the rink and, and they arranged to, to sort of text with me. And I, I published all of, the all of the results of our conversation. So just getting a little, a little crazy with some of the story ideas that we wanted to implement. The media landscape was a little bit harder to tell stories than it typically is because we didn't have access, despite being in the building, I didn't have access to the dressing room. I didn't have access to speak with the players face to face. They had media sort of rooms set up in the upper bowl where the media were stationed and we spoke through cameras to the players. So um, it, it, was, it was a different experience from top to bottom, but one that I had a lot of fun with. I like trying to sort of do things differently and come up with new story ideas and that kind of a thing. And then when it was over, I was sad to see, despite how tired I was of it, I was still sad to see it sort of move out to Edmonton. That's awesome. I think that's a really awesome having that, you know, group chat set up um, with the coaches cool. during a game. That sounds like a really cool uh, idea and it's something fun to be a part of. Um, but that, I mean, I, that's, you're like, you're right. It's a unique experience. One thing that comes to me and, and Dwayne and I talked about this at some point when the bubble first started, but just, um, how the media availability, how much it changed and how you guys were yeah. used to getting unique raw quotes. And not only that, but just being in the locker room, you get more of a feel of the vibe, right? And mm -hmm. maybe nonverbal communication cues that you can pick up on and not having that through Zoom um, as much um, definitely presents a challenge. So, you know, tip of the cap to you and all your colleagues for, um, you know, still putting out some really quality um, hockey pieces and journalism overall, um, because it was, you know, a trouble, a tr um, difficult situation for lack of a better term. And I think you guys knocked it out of the park. Um, so did you have, did you have the opportunity to go to Edmonton or did you know all along that being, you know, cause you're based in Aurora or Toronto that you were just going to do Toronto? 
Yeah, no, I, I knew all along that Toronto was going to be my thing. We had uh, Thomas Drance and, and Dan Robson out in Edmonton. And okay. uh, obviously our beat writer, Daniel Nugent Bowman, who's also based out of Edmonton, was there as well. So the idea was that we weren't, we weren't going to be credentialed for a massive group. Uh, the NHL wanted credentialing to be pretty tight. So we were only given three, three sort of reporters, per se, uh, in each city. So in, in Toronto, it was me, James Myrtle, and, and Jonas Siegel. And then out Edmonton, it was the other three guys that I just mentioned. So um, I knew all along that, that media weren't going to be, uh, unless you were with this sort of broadcasting team um, or, or the only person writing for an outlet, that we weren't going to be approved to, to have four or five people out in Edmonton for the cup final. So that was just the way it was going to play out. And, and Drance has done, in particular, Drance, who's been there from the very beginning, He's now been, Robson has since been replaced by, by Arfan Basu, who's our Montreal Canadiens reporter, but Drance has been there since day one and he's been killing it out there. So yeah. I've, I've just been following along with his coverage primarily. For sure. Yeah. And it, it, you know, another thing, to, one thing I want to ask too is like, how did they, as far as like amenities in the bubble, like, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there at the rink for, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours, like you said, like, you know, how do they, you know, as far as a hospitality standpoint, how did, how did they take care of you guys? Like, you know, uh, as far as food went, like, yeah, obviously, I mean, I doubt I mean, snack bars aren't open or anything like that where you just walk up and go grab something to eat. Like, and did they take care of you guys there? Or did you eat pretty well or? So they had, they had concession, one concession stand open in the 300 levels for us for the first week or so. There was a huge influx of media early on. It was bubble hockey was back and everybody wanted to do their bubble hockey stories. So I think in the qualifying round, it was pretty good because the concessions were open. As the first and second round started, especially once the leaps were out, um, things changed once the Leafs were eliminated because the, the local media presence was a lot smaller. There were days where I was the only reporter other than the Sportsnet reporters and maybe one or two other people in the building. Wow. So once there was only three or four of us in the building at a time, they actually stopped serving concessions to the media because nobody was buying it. So that meant that between every game, when I, after media availabilities had wrapped up and before warm-up started for the next game, you had to kind of gather your stuff and, and go out into, into wherever, into, into downtown Toronto and try to find something to eat locally without eating in the rink. So I actually didn't, eat, didn't ever really eat in the rink other than those first couple of days. And then uh, later, as, the, as everything kind of progressed, I was, I was leaving between games once I'd filed my story or once I'd finished the media availabilities to run and, and sort of go to a local restaurant and grab something quick to eat and that kind of a thing. But the amenities were great all told. I mean, we, we had our temperatures checked every time we showed up to the rink. Um, we had uh, uh, bathrooms available to us that were clean daily. Um, so all, all of that was great. There was no issues. And then right outside of where all of the media were seated in the 300s, there were two media rooms, one for the away team and one for the home team, where we were given, the people who were in the building were given preference on questions. So before they opened it up to the Zoom calls where all the reporters are sitting at home, the people in the building got to ask the first four or five questions of every scrum, which was helpful for us. That's so, huge. Um, it, it was nice. So all told, no complaints. It would have been great to have access to food for sure. I, I went, if there was a time where I, I sort of didn't have the time between games to run and grab food, it, I would get pretty hungry. And I started actually sort of sneaking candy in. Like a movie theater, sneaking, yeah, sneaking it, in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it, it was different for sure. You know, as soon as Toronto was out there, like, ah, y'all can go fuck yourselves. You're on your own. <laughs> uh, I think it's um, just that once the Leafs were out, just how much things change, and it makes so much sense, right? With the 
crazy media coverage they get. But yeah. it must have been, like you mentioned, culture shock, but just how different it went from there being a ton of interest from, um, you know, a wide variety of, of journalists early on through, and, well, there's still a lot of teams there, and then it kind of gets whittled down, the difference between how it was in the very beginning to how it was in the second round. That must have been a lot yeah. different too. So um, yeah. that's interesting. I think that, you know what, looking back on on this, you know, time period, hopefully we get back to normal conditions sooner rather than later and get fans back in the building, you know, when it's safe and when they deem it safe, um, you know. But I think it's going to be interesting to look back and, and you having been a part of it, you know, it's going to be a cool story to tell for, for years to come. So definitely think that's really cool. Um, I have um, – so getting – transitioning over to the uh, world of hockey, uh, World Cup of Hockey piece, um, I, I really recommend for anybody that, that doesn't have their athletic description, this is a huge reason to go and get it because uh, you put it out. You and Craig Kustens and Eric – help me again, Duhatchik. Duhatchik. There you go. I nailed it. So um, last week or earlier in the week, you guys put out an article uh, projecting the – um, imaginary rosters for Canada, USA, and Team North America. And um, Dwayne, did you get a chance to look at that? Yeah, I was really excited, man. I was actually waiting to bring this up. That Team North America roster, boy. Well, not only unstoppable, that, I, I unstoppable. Like, yes, but I, I wanted to bring this up. Two things really struck me: a, just how much I loved how you included the uh, the rosters from from the past tournament. That really, because you know, I wasn't. I had an idea, but it really just seeing it visually gave me a better idea. Just how how much better Team USA is and how much stronger they are down the middle. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in my life that we've been able to put out, especially at center, and that's the position that drives matchups, right? And you look at what Team USA is able to bring to the table now, and it's it's encouraging for, for, for Team USA future events. That really struck me. Um, but then just to look at what Team North America – could still look like um, and how much that affected. Um, well, two things, just how much it wouldn't really bother team Canada because team Canada one B is still legendary. Right. And yeah. um, I think it would, it would obviously affect USA a bit more um, by taking Eichel and Matthews out, but man, looking at that team North America for this tournament, like down the middle, Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, Jack Eichel, Anthony Sorelli. And just so much talent, man. Um, loved your guys' idea to put um, on USA uh, Kachuk and, or Eichel in between, uh, centering Kachuk and Kachuk. That would be a dream to see those two on the ice at the same time. I guess just kind of take me through what that process was like going through this piece. Ton of fun reading it. Honestly, probably when I saw that pop up and I read it, I was glued in. Um, and, and still in the process, uh, you know, kind of breaking down the latest one. I think it was what Sweden, Finland. Um, yep. Today we released Sweden, Finland, Russia, Team Europe, and the Czech Republic. Still breaking down that one, but kind of just take me through what it was like uh, with the first one and, and how much fun that was. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It, it kind of popped into my DMs through my editor. My editor had had sort of realized that this is kind of the this month is kind of the four year anniversary since the last best on best hockey tournament and in the world of hockey, really. So it, it's been four years and that's normally the typical cadence of these things, the typical cycle of these things where we're due at this point for another best on best tournament. And we're not obviously not going to get one, probably not until Beijing, assuming the IOC and, and the NHL can work 
hospital, the insurance problems, et cetera. So it, it, it was fun to sort of rehash, okay, if, if it's happening this fall, like it sort of should have in a normal cycle, what do these teams look like? And I think the big thing is that North, Team North America was fun the first time around because they were kind of the Cinderella story. They were the upset. They were the underdogs. And what emerged in this, and one of the great things about working at The Athletic is, is getting to work with Dom, who is able to crunch the numbers and really give you a good sense for who the favorites are, who's in a matchup between Team North America and Team Canada, who, which is the better team, that kind of thing. And one of the things that emerged is that Team North America – in a, if they rebooted this exact same format from 2016, Team North America aren't just the Cinderella story anymore. They're the favorites. They're the best yeah, team in the tournament. The powerhouse. Canada and Team USA. And that's obviously because they still, ha- they still would have had Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel and now Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr and Carter Hart. And you go down the list. It's, it's, it's an all-star close. team. Yeah. Um, so that part of it was really fun because I think – Certainly, the Americans are more impacted by that just because they don't have the same depth. All of those those players, the Kachucks, the Eichels, the Kyle Connors, the Jack Eichels, uh, the Austin Matthews, the, the Zach Kerensky, the Charlie McAvoy, the Quinn Hughes, those players, you're stripping virtually every single one of those players from Team USA. All of those kids would be on Team USA. Whereas with Canada, maybe you're taking a Connor McDavid and a Matt Barzell and a Mitch Marner away and maybe a Carter Hardaway, but you're not you're not completely pillaging the core of, the, of their roster. So it was interesting to compare what uh, Team Canada and Team USA would look like with and without those U23 players, because I think with the U23 players, Canada and the USA are, are probably neck and neck. I think USA Hockey has done a good job closing the gap on Hockey Canada over the last decade, and it's probably a coin toss in a game. But I think Otherwise, Canada's probably the heavy favorite because the Americans would have lost so many of their top players to Team North America. So it was a fun exercise, and it's cool to see what the numbers and the percentages look like when Dom puts them all together. Well, can you, can you let Dom and yourself know that I'm not too happy about Jack Eichel dropping down the third-line center with Austin Matthews up the second-line center? I'm a big advocate. I'm a big advocate of reviving the old – the old uh, legendary Buffalo-Toronto rivalry that hasn't existed in the better parts of a decade. Well, hey, um, if you have anything and, to do with it, it's coming back because uh, Scott Dwayne oh, has been I'm leading the way. Ruling I'm the leading fire. Dwayne has just been stirring the pot on Twitter <laughs> for the past better part of a year, just oh, absolutely yeah. just giving it to Scott, Toronto fans. Scott, up, when, when you guys when you guys lost to to, uh, to Ayers. Uh, yep. I, I lost my mind on Twitter, and I might have been—I might have been trending that night. <laughs> I might have—I might have—I might have. Are you a Leafs fan? I grew up a Leafs fan. I grew up in Aurora, about forty-five minutes north of the city here. So St. I grew Andrews. Up. Yes, yes, of course. Um, I played but, yeah, the bagpipe tournament. I still have memories of I oh, think no the tournament, and we played the Friday night game with yep. the bagpipe. That was such a cool experience. Yeah, the, and, and the ACC, as they call it in Aurora, the Aurora sort of community center there gets bumping for those games. So, so you are a yeah, Leafs fan, confirmed. I wouldn't call myself a Leafs fan anymore. I, I don't really, and I know every journalist says this, says this, and oftentimes fans call bullshit, but I honestly don't really care about whether the Leafs win or lose anymore. I, I think the Leafs winning a Stanley Cup in my lifetime would be a cool experience. Yeah, I think so too. Feel it, Dwayne. Um, so I'm cheering for the yeah, story that I mean, way, but 
I just I just like watching good hockey these days, and and the Leafs are the team that I've typically covered the most in terms of uh, the journalism side. So um, it, it's been a fun few years in Toronto to finally cover a good team. I, I, my colleagues at the Athletic will tell you that the years before I arrived on the scene to cover the Leafs were were not pretty. So. Um, that part of it's been good, but I, I honestly, the night to night stuff, I'm, I'm not too bothered about how the Leafs play or what their, what their outcomes are anymore. Well, I yeah, think it's tough to win. It's, it's tough to win a cup when there's more than six teams in the league. I know. <laughs> oh, I'm twin. You're awful, man. Oh my God. No, Hey, I, uh, urging yeah. is, is looking through the, the, so I didn't have a ton of time to delve in. I didn't even see the, the Sweden Finland thing until this morning. Um, but encouraging to see, um, you know, Victor Olofsson featuring prominently on Team Sweden. I think that – On the second has, line. Well, yeah, dude. He's like – but really excited for him as he continues to, you know, prove that he's an elite goal scorer in this league. Um, totally. And I wasn't sure that Rasmus Dahlin would be on that roster. I was hoping he would be. Um, but that's also encouraging to see, right? Like, he's a young guy that maybe hasn't lived up. And I say this, you know, with some caution that maybe he hasn't lived up to the hype. But I still think his ceiling is so high. I think that he's only going to get better. Um, and he still could be, you know, a Norris guy in the near future. Has a lot to work on, right? I don't think it's close. But he has the tools, right? And seeing some of the plays he made. I remember um, just watching, you know, his draft year. That one inside-out spinorama move he made in, in the World Juniors as, as mm -hmm. an underager. And just seeing stuff like that that not many players can do. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of that. But then again, he's played on a team that, that has been – not a good possession team, not a good, you know, course percentage team by any means. So, you know, as, as we get better as a, as a, as a team, you know, maybe his confidence starts to pick up and he starts to get more opportunities, but um, you know, looking through this, what um, I guess I'll ask this, if, if these rosters that you guys put out were to, were to happen, I know you did the win probabilities between the two, who would you have as the, uh, the favorite and who would be the dark horse to win this in this 2020 version? Well, I think that the Team North America would be the favorite. Then you would have Team Canada second, probably Team USA third, Team Sweden fourth. And then I think there's a bit of a drop-off after that. I, I do think that Sweden has emerged as a stronger hockey country than the Finns and the Russians, especially at the men's level. It, it's a little bit closer these days still at that sort of junior, world juniors level. Yeah. But I think the emergence of Elias Pettersson and Mika Zibanejad as two of the best players in the world has given Sweden that next generation without the Sedins. So, um, and then you've obviously got, still got Victor Hedman and Eric Carlson and John Klingberg and Dalene's coming and, but there's a there are six between Sweden and uh, Sweden and Finland big big difference right yeah definitely so I think the Swedes in Europe are the strongest team for sure now despite the firepower that the Russians still have and then in terms of a dark horse I'm not sure there is a, a, a dark horse per se in that kind of a format it's hard to call like a team Sweden or a team Finland a dark horse and I don't think that the Czechs would stand a chance in a tournament like this so Plus, I don't think Team Europe would, would be able to repeat the Cinderella story of going to the final like they did at the World Cup. So, um, I mean, if you're looking for outside of North America, I think Sweden would have the biggest chance of upsetting the, the sort of three North American teams, if you will. I, I think Elias Pettersson is just an unbelievable talent. I would love to see him play with someone like William Nylander. 
Um, and then between Mika Zibanejad and Philip Forsberg and the emergence of someone like Victor Olofsson, who you obviously touched on as a goal-scoring threat to give them a little bit more depth, um, th those kinds of pieces help go a long way. And then despite losing Henrik Lundqvist, they're still really strong in net. I mean, if you had to list the five best goalies in the world right now, Robin Lehner and Jacob Markstrom might both be in the conversation. So um, there's still depth in net. There's still two potential starters there. So that Sweden team would be a lot of fun to watch, I think. For sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, piggybacking off that, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Scott, but, um, you know, you were mentioning guys like Rasa Stalin, Victor Olsen, young, young players in, in, our, in, our, in our organization right now. Um, you know, our, our farm system, our prospect pool is, you know, absolutely depleted. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, I, it's sad to say the least, you know, after you say names like, you know, Ukapeka Lucan and Dylan Cousins, there's not, there's not much to pick through when it comes to what the Sabres have in the farm or, you know, in juniors right now. Um, you know, you have guys like Ryan Johnson and Ryan Johnson and Samuelson, but the, there's nothing really that really st sticks out to you. It stands out. Um, you know, are there, it, do, do you, you know, with this next draft uh, coming up, um, you know, here very shortly um you know what what should what should the sabers game plan be too as after after that first round like where you know are there any dark horse players out there that you see falling past past the uh the first round that you see that would be a good fit for the sabers i know that's a hard question to ask but you know there's there's you know there's a huge depletion in in prospects in our farm system right now and i know we just hired uh, a new, an entire new coaching staff, which caught us all by here in Buffalo by surprise when they kind of axed the entire coaching staff in Rochester, especially with how well they were doing in Rochester with the, with, with what the talent they had. Um, are there any guys out there that kind of just, you know, you, you, you think should be on the Sabres radar? Yeah, certainly. I, I, I would, my advice to the Sabres, if I'm sitting in that room, would be to, to swing on talent. I think some of the mistakes that have been made with players like Ryan Johnson and Matias Samuelson is that, sure, they're fine prospects, but they aren't game-changing prospects. They aren't going to be more than depth pieces, even if all goes well for them at the next level. So I think they're in a position now where they need to start adding some real talent to the pool. So I'd be, I'd be, I'd be willing to take some risks, take some chances, um, sort of, put a bow on it and, and really try to do something special at the draft. So I look at uh, in that kind of a range in that those, those sort of sleeper picks, if you will, I look at a player like VT Miettinen out of, out of Finland, who's about to come over and play at St. Cloud state, a little bit of a smaller kid, but tons of skill. And I think because he was committed to the college game and couldn't, couldn't play professional hockey due to that commitment, he didn't get to play in Liga last season and really become a star prospect because he was stuck in the junior ranks waiting to come over here to go to college. So Nietzsche's a player that comes to mind. Another kid that comes to mind is a kid by the name of Carter Savoy, who was one of the best players at the junior A level in Canada this year. But anytime you're playing tier two, it's a little bit harder to get the notoriety unless you're someone special like a Kale McCarr, that kind of a thing. Um, so anytime you're a tier two junior and you're not in the CHL, it's, it, it is a little bit more difficult. But Savoy's a kid who can score goals with the best of them in this draft. So those are probably two names that I would that immediately come to mind. I would have to think on some others. But I think those two kids at forward could potentially give you a, a top six forward if everything goes well. And that's the kind of swing that even if there's a little bit more risk involved, Savoy's got some issues with his skating and his compete level and that kind of a thing. And Mietnin's also on the smaller side. Uh, take a chance. To, uh, take a swing. Take a cut on a kid and, and hope that you can sort of develop them into something a little bit more special than you typically see in that range. 
I, I love it. I love it. Um, I agree with that. I appreciate you know you spending as much time as you have with us. I, I know our listeners are going to love this. Um, one last question for me would be your thoughts on the Stanley Cup thus far. Um, just my quick thoughts uh, before we get your thoughts and, and maybe your prediction. Um, a, Stamkos' return was awesome, even if it was just, you know, for a period. I think for him, doing more with three shifts than anybody else has in as far as what he was able to contribute, that goal, seeing the Lightning's uh, bench's reaction was um, just an awesome moment. Um, but I think that, you know, to see the Lightning start to click on, on all, you know, on all cylinders is a scary sign for, uh, for Dallas. Um, and maybe you're st starting to see Kadobin come back to earth a little bit. Uh, just your thoughts on what, what, what the Stanley Cup's been so far and um, maybe your predictions here for, um, I think, the game's tonight. Or, no, it's tomorrow night. And then or the back-to-backs. I think it's been a lot of fun. I think it's been – I mean, certainly Dallas probably isn't the team that the NHL hoped would be there just because – despite Texas being a huge sports market, it's not a huge TV market for them. And they needed the ratings to be really high and that kind of a thing. And Dallas doesn't play the most exciting style in the world, but I still think it's been great hockey from start to finish. I think Dallas is a great story. I love that, that Tyler Sagan has been able to sort of continue to contribute despite having an obvious wrist injury. It's been great to see Jamie Ben come back to life after a bit of a down year. Obviously Miro Heiskanen is special. Like he's, he's going to win a Norris trophy one day, I think. Um, so that part of it's been fun for Dallas. And then it's great. I think it's great that Tampa is likely at this point going to win the Stanley cup. I think they're, they're going to be our Stanley cup champions for this year. And I think that's a fitting outcome after the, the upset of last year against the blue jackets in the first round and just how much talent they've assembled there and the way that they've been able to build that team. And then the job they did this year at the deadline to insulate that sort of core of, of, of elite talent with players like Barclay Goodrow, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they've, they've assembled a, a kind of perfect team there in Tampa. And it, I think it's a deserving Stanley Cup champion for a unique year. And I'm, I'm really excited for Stamkos and Hedman and all of those guys. It's, it's a good group of guys there. And certainly the talent is exceptional. And people like Victor Hedman now get to state their, their Hockey Hall of Fame career sort of someday. They, he gets to have a case now because he's got that Stanley Cup and he's got the Norris trophies. And all of that's going to re-enter the conversation now for him and Kucherov and Stamkos. Coast. And those, those players are the kind of players that deserve a Stanley Cup and I think deserve a potential spot in the Hall of Fame when it's all said and done. So this is a, a big, big moment for them. And I'm really happy for those guys. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I've been pretty high on Tampa since the start of the year. Um, I, I just think it's just, it'd be just so disappointing to see a roster with that much skill and talent on it to just not, you know, win a cup, you know, and um, I'm a big, I'm a big, fan of Vasilevsky. Um, well, that's part of the fun of this time of year is the fun to, to see the pieces. And I, I think it, it's hard for anybody to project trades, right? Like I kind of held back from asking you, like, do you see any trades inside the top 10? Because we really have no really, you know, idea. And it can be, you know, a crapshoot when it comes to that. So um, I, I always find it interesting um, when mock drafts are having trades included because, like we're just throwing so many hypotheticals into it. Right. And um, that gets tough to predict, but um, Dwayne, I, I, I don't have anything more. I really appreciate your time, Scott. This has been a lot of fun for me. I really enjoy your work um, for our listeners that haven't already, please check them out at the athletic and, and um, on Twitter, Scott, what's your, what's your handle at Scott C Wheeler on Twitter at Scott C Wheeler. You heard him here first. And um, mm -hmm. 
great follow and, and just a great, great hockey journalist. Appreciate uh, your draft coverage, you know, the best and, um, you know, everything you do and, and your outlook on the Sabres is, is going to, you know, be appreciated by our listeners. So, uh, Dwayne, you have anything else? Uh, no, Scott. Uh, again, thanks for your, your insight and, uh, you know, everything you've bought to this interview. I appreciate it. Um, and I hope we get to talk to you again sometime soon, man. Cool. Thanks, guys. Will thanks do. again. That was Scott Wheeler here for Two Goalies, One Mike. Um, me and Dwayne will be signing on later in the week, and we will be bringing you episode 34 with another surprise guest. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. For Dwayne Sinell, I'm Johnny Cullen. That'll do it for Two Goalies, One Mike. This podcast is brought to you by Mitt's Barbershop, created and owned by a true friend of the program, Justin Gritsky. Mitts is a modern-day barbershop that provides a cool atmosphere featuring some of the greatest barbershops Buffalo has to offer. Come in, enjoy a free beer, play some video games, and get the best haircut in the area. When I asked Justin what sets Mitts apart from the evil chain super-duper cuts that we see at every intersection, his answer says it all. My vision was to create the only true barbershop in Cheektowaga. When customers walked in, I wanted them to get that feeling they got when they strolled into the barbershops of old. The golden era of what a barbershop meant, not just a place to get your hair cut. So if you're looking for the real deal, come on down to Mitts to get the real feel of what a true barbershop is and what it's supposed to be. The clear-cut top dog for all your haircutting needs. Look no further than Mitts Barbershop. And when you mention that two goalies and one mic sent you in, receive $5 off your haircut that day. Talk about customer service at its finest. Located at 3461 Genesee Street in Cheektowaga, it is located right next door to the 33 Speakeasy Bar and Grill. Their phone number is 868-1424, and their hours are Monday, 12 to 6, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. On Saturday, they're open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. and closed on Sundays because why not? Everybody deserves a little Sunday fun day. I want to finish this ad read off by reading a great testimonial from one of Mitt's loyal customers. Tired of the cookie-cutter salons trying to get your attention? Also tired of those men-focused salons? Then when you leave, you feel like you just visited a Supercuts for Men and the haircut isn't any better? Then Mitts is the place for you. Great cut, very professional, great atmosphere. A great place for men to get cut and trimmed up. I'm honestly a little sad I'm only visiting Buffalo because I need something like Mitts back home. You heard it here first. Come on down to Mitts for a great cut and an even better experience. We're happy to have them as a sponsor to the show, and we hope you join us in finding out what makes Mitts just so special. Thanks again to Justin and all the hard work him and his staff do. And without further ado, we'll kick it back to Two Goalies, One Mike. This podcast is brought to you by Better Biscuit. Better Biscuit is a hockey training tool designed to help you develop your game. These fiberglass reinforced pucks are developed to handle less than perfect surfaces, enabling hockey players of all ages to practice their skills in their driveway, basement, or schoolyard. 
honing their skills whenever and wherever possible. It comes in two different styles. The Better Biscuit Sniper helps players develop forehand, backhand, one-touch, saucer, drop passing, and shooting, ideal for perfecting those toe drags, puck control, and stick handling. The other option is the Better Biscuit Passer. The passer will help you develop softer hands and help you become more accurate with your passes and stick handling. will also help you improve your puck possession confidence for any skill level. Be sure to check out Better Biscuit at betterbiscuit.net for all your hockey training needs. Thanks again for all your support, and be sure to check out Better Biscuit. Now back to the show. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.